Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The poem says, Human voices wake us and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So almost by chance, by accident, the first episode of this podcast that still survives, you might say, is a reading of a poem by Louise Glick, the American poet, on the morning that it was announced that she had won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So I thought that for episode number 201, I could get back to her poetry. I had read, I'm not sure how long ago it was, four or five months ago, I had read a selection of her poems from her 1990 book called Ararat, and tonight I wanted to read a few poems from the book that followed that, called The Wild Iris, from 1992. And I suppose that a good definition especially if we're talking about Glick, or at least for me anyway, a good definition of what a great poet can be is to come across a collection that nobody else could have written other than this poet. And for me, the poems in Ararat and the poems in The Wild Iris are, uh, the collections are so I don't want to say strange in an off-putting way, but they're so distinctive and individual. I can't think of anyone else who could have written these books. I can't think of anyone to, uh, any other poet's work to compare these books to. And uh, I've mentioned a few times here that wonderful uh, idea of Seamus Heaney's that what a poet is doing, and I guess you could think of uh, a novelist as well, or a musician who is constantly releasing albums. And he said that a poet's career is a matter of getting going. You have the books that get you started, the poems that you really love that get you started in wanting to do poems at all. And then you have books that are sort of keeping you going. They're not breaking any ground, and in the end they may not be very good at all as as anything more than uh, stepping stones to something else. And then Heaney says, if you're lucky, you get started again, and uh, you break into something new. And whatever I may think of Glick as a whole, of her poetry as a whole, uh, I don't know of anybody, uh, I can't think of any poet, even Heaney, who seems to have gotten going again, who 
found something new and a new way to say it back to back with two collections right one after the other and she certainly does that with the wild iris and so uh, I should say the wild iris is a collection of uh, how many would we say here probably about 40 or 50 poems with uh, with the garden as I believe it's her garden as the setting and in many and in many senses the the garden is what is speaking most of the time and uh, a lot of the poems have the same title such as matins I'm looking at the table of contents and there are four at least at least five poems called matins at least seven or eight poems called vespers uh, there are poems called the hawthorn tree field flowers uh, daisies spring snow end of winter the garden um, they're all very fairly short poems and you might say very spare poems uh, but i think that they are also uh, miraculous poems and when I get to the halfway mark let's see one I'm gonna read eight of these after I've read four of them I will read from an interview that she gave about this collection Um, and the first one is one of the poems that is called matins and you will hear in this poem as in many others uh, Louise Glick addressing God or divinity or I think what she says in in the interview is uh, that wordless thing that is neither human nor nature and uh, this is one of those poems it is called matins forgive me if I say I love you the powerful are always lied to since the weak are always driven by panic I cannot love what I can't conceive, and you disclose virtually nothing. Are you like the hawthorn tree, always the same thing in the same place? Or are you more the foxglove, inconsistent, first springing up a pink spike on the slope behind the daisies, and the next year purple in the rose garden? You must see it is useless to us, this silence, that promotes belief you must be all things, the foxglove and the hawthorn tree, the vulnerable rose and the tough daisy. We are left to think you couldn't possibly exist. Is this what you mean us to think? Does this explain the silence of the morning, the crickets not yet rubbing their wings, the cats not fighting in the yard. And here is a poem called Retreating Wind. When I made you, I loved you. Now I pity you. I gave you all you needed. Bed of earth, blanket of blue air, As I get further away from you, I see you more clearly. Your souls should have been immense by now, not what they are, small, talking things. I gave you every gift, blue of the spring morning, 
time you didn't know how to use. You wanted more, the one gift reserved for another creation. Whatever you hoped, you will not find yourselves in the garden, among the growing plants. Your lives are not circular like theirs. Your lives are the bird's flight, which begins and ends in stillness, which begins and ends in form echoing this arc from the white birch to the apple tree. And the very next poem is called The Garden. I couldn't do it again. I can hardly bear to look at it. In the garden, in the light rain, the young couple planting a row of peas, as though no one has ever done this before. The great difficulties have never as yet been faced and solved. They cannot see themselves in fresh dirt, starting up without perspective, the hills behind them pale green, clouded with flowers. She wants to stop, he wants to go to the end, to stay with the thing. Look at her, touching his cheek to make a truce, her fingers cool with spring rain. In thin grass, bursts of purple crocus. Even here, even at the beginning of love, her hand leaving his face makes an image of departure, and they think they are free to overlook this sadness. Let me read that one again. I'd like to, uh, as I start to read poetry here again, perhaps read them twice, and that's one I think that is worth hearing again. The Garden. I couldn't do it again. I can hardly bear to look at it. And you wonder what that I is. Uh, the I sometimes, the first person sometimes seems to be the voice of that thing that is neither human nor natural. Uh, what we call God looking down and seeing creation here. I couldn't do it again. I can hardly bear to look at it. In the garden, in the light rain, the young couple planting a row of peas, as though no one has ever done this before. The great difficulties have never as yet been faced and solved. They cannot see themselves in fresh dirt, starting up without perspective, the hills behind them pale green, clouded with flowers. She wants to stop. He wants to get to the end to stay with the thing. Look at her, touching his cheek to make a truce, her fingers cool with spring rain. In thin grass, bursts of purple crocus. Even here, even at the beginning of love, her hand leaving his face makes an image of departure, and they think they are free to overlook this sadness. And 13 pages later is a poem called Field Flowers. 
what are you saying? That you want eternal life? Are your thoughts really as compelling as all that? Certainly, you don't look at us, don't listen to us. On your skin, stain of sun, dust of yellow buttercups. I'm talking to you, you staring through bars of high grass, shaking your little rattle. Oh, the soul, the soul. Is it enough only to look inward? Contempt for humanity is one thing, but why disdain the expansive field? Your gaze rising over the clear heads of the wild buttercups into what? Your poor idea of heaven, absence of change. Better than earth? How would you know, who are neither here nor there, standing in our midst? That's four poems. Let me find this interview where she's asked about this collection. First, she says that uh, ever since the her collection called Ararat, uh, which include the Wild Iris, Meadowlands, Vita Nova, and, and the others, um, she says that they are all holes. And she says holes, um, eight. W-H-O-L-E-S. She says, I always work very hard on organizing groups of disparate lyrics into a shape that would give some indication of a larger ambition than might otherwise be apparent. And then, after Ararat, I started writing these book-length sequences. Well, at least that's how they appear to me. The wild iris takes its form from the arc of a summer in a garden. There are three types of speakers. The natural world speaks, and the poems spoken by the earth have the names of flowers, such as the silver lily, the wild iris, and field flowers. Then there are poems in which a human speaker addresses occasionally the earth, I think. But mostly, whatever, I have no word to describe this divinity or celestial presence, whatever it is that has animated its life. And the interviewer says, some people call that God. And Glick says, yeah, they do, don't they? Well, I don't. It's shorthand. It's shorthand for whatever is not included in the human and the natural. Something is left out. And then there is the voice in which that presence responds, usually with impatient disappointment to the human being. Occasionally with tenderness, exhausted tenderness, it became clear to me at a certain point that the sound of that voice became very like the sound of my mother, not in its elevations, but in its substance. I should also say that my mother was a great partisan, even very early, of my work, and gave me great encouragement. But she also set a very high standard. And the book is shaped, the book The Wild Iris is shaped, by the failure of these voices always to meet the natural, which addresses the human, the human that addresses the natural and the divine, and the divine that looks at it all and says, I had better hopes for you than this. Um, because she does mention her mother here, I think that I will 
add on to the end of this episode the readings I did from Ararat, since that is about her mother and her father, the death, the early death of her father and her relationship with her sister. Um, again, I don't know quite anyone who uh, has any other poet who has an interest in the natural world who is uh, uh, skeptical, you might say, of religion, but willing to write poems like these that are uh, at least give voice to something we might call God or divinity, um, and to do it in a uh, in a powerful way, not a dismissive or cynical way, uh, to imagine that voice, whatever what it might be, and to and to write poems about. God being disappointed in a way that also isn't just cheap or just a joke. Uh, it's something that is really quite moving. Uh, it's, I suppose, the difference between um, the piety of uh, bad uh, believing poems and the uh, the equally uh, bad poems of angry atheists or unbelievers. So the other, the last four poems here, the, this is uh, another one that is called Matins. Not the sun merely, but the earth itself shines. White fire leaping from the showy mountains and the flat road shimmering in early morning. Is this for us only, to induce response, or are you stirred also, helpless to control yourself in Earth's presence? I am ashamed at what I thought you were, distant from us, regarding us as an experiment. It is a bitter thing to be the disposable animal, a bitter thing. Dear friend, dear trembling partner, what surprises you most in what you feel? Earth's radiance or your own delight? For me, always, the delight is the surprise. That's just great. And of course, uh, it should surprise no one that I seem to have, my favorites from this collection seem to be either the ones where that divinity is speaking or where the humans are. Uh, addressing that divinity. This one is called Vespers. More than you love me, very possibly, you love the beasts of the field, even possibly the field itself, in August, dotted with wild chicory and aster. I know I have compared myself to those flowers, their range of feeling so much smaller and without issue. Also to white sheep, actually gray. I am uniquely suited to praise you. Then why torment me? I study the hawkweed, the buttercup protected from the grazing herd by being poisonous. Is pain your gift to make me conscious in my need of you, as though I must need you to worship you, or have you abandoned me and favor of the field, the stoic lambs turning silver in twilight, waves of wild aster and chicory, shining pale blue and deep blue, 
since you already know how like your raiment it is. And I'm reminded also of a, and this is 20 pages later for the last two poems, I'm reminded of an interview I found that Glick gave where she says uh, she, she say hates or just dislikes, I think she said she dislikes intensely reading her own poems out loud and she especially, I think she also said, so I hope she's not listening, she doesn't like to hear other people reading her poems out loud. She conceives of them as objects on the page and shapes on the page. And that's striking to me now, especially uh, because these poems sound and read so well out loud. There is a music in them that needs to be heard. And this one is called September Twilight. And again, I believe this is uh, the divinity speaking to us. I gathered you together. I can dispense with you. I'm tired of you, chaos of the living world. I can only extend myself for so long to a living thing. I summoned you into existence by opening my mouth, by lifting my little finger. Shimmering blues of the wild aster, blossom of lily, immense, gold-veined. You come and go. Eventually I forget your names. You come and go, every one of you flawed in some way, in some way compromised. You are worth one life, no more than that. I gathered you together. I can erase you, as though you were a draft to be thrown away, an exercise, because I've finished you, vision of deepest mourning. Now, honestly, who, who else has ever written a poem like that? I suppose the sentiment has been put into poetry many times, but in that exact way, that's, that's something. And this is the last one that I'll read here. It is actually, is it? It's the last poem in the book. It is called The White Lilies. As a man and woman make a garden between them, like a bed of stars, here they linger in the summer evening, and the evening turns cold with their terror. It could all end. It is capable of devastation. All, all can be lost. Through scented air, the narrow columns, uselessly rising and beyond, a churning sea of poppies. Hush, beloved. It doesn't matter to me how many summers I live to return. This one summer we have entered eternity. I felt your two hands bury me to release its splendor. And one more time there, the white lilies. As a man and woman make a garden between them, like a bed of stars, here they linger in the summer evening, and the evening turns cold with their terror. It could all end. It is capable of devastation. All, all can be lost 
through scented air, the narrow columns uselessly rising, and beyond a churning sea of poppies. Hush, beloved, it doesn't matter to me how many summers I live to return. This one summer we have entered eternity. I felt your two hands bury me to release its splendor. And since, as she says, all of her collections since the one called Ararat, she has meant, especially the wild iris, I think that would fit very well. They are meant to be read in one sitting. They're meant to be single, long sequences. Since that's the case, I will definitely add on to this recording uh, my voice from a few months ago reading poems from Ararat, because I think if you strung all of her best poems together, all of Louise Glick's best poems together, at least since Ararat, uh, they would also appear to be telling a single story. So wait for my voice from a while ago coming up. While I will eventually do the obligatory and perhaps unnecessary episode on why I decided to start this podcast in the first place, it's worth saying now that for me, the podcast really starts when Louise Glick was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. I had recorded a few other poems uh, that were uh, posted here before then. But that morning I drove to the grocery store and recorded one of Glick's poems, and that was the very first uh, poem that I posted here, or that I kept here. I deleted the early ones. And that was also the one that gave me the hint as to what this podcast might be, because I didn't want, as I had done with the other poems I had recorded, just simply give a title, a name, and read the poem. I was driven, even if it was only 10 seconds, to say, this is a poem by Louise Glick, and I'm reading it because she won the Nobel Prize in Literature today. Just that simple announcement that uh, simply allowing myself to speak for 10 seconds in a way that wasn't reading a poem by somebody or a poem by myself has really opened out what I thought this podcast would be, which has allowed for me to speak this way right now, or in all the personal ways I have in other episodes. And it certainly led to me being able to do what I've been doing recently with Walt Whitman, of simply reading a biography of him and inserting my own commentary before, during, and after. Now, in the time that Glick won the Nobel Prize, I decided to get a copy of her collected poems, uh, 1962 to 2012, to see what it is that the Nobel people think is 
the kind of poetry written by an American in the last 50 years that deserves a Nobel Prize. I've wondered if people thought the same thing when T.S. Eliot won the Nobel Prize or when I believe he won it in 48, when Yeats won the Nobel Prize in 20, 1923, uh, when Seamus Haney won in 1995 or 1996, I believe. Did people who hadn't read any of these poets' work decided just see, well, what do people think is good poetry these days? What do people think is representative poetry of the last few decades? So I picked up Glick's book, and I'm still sort of unsure what to make of it. In a strange way, her collected poems taken as a whole doesn't really sit with me all that well. But I've had the experience with other poets that when I just go back to the, to the favorite poems of theirs that I found, suddenly their stature just shoots straight up in the air. When, you, when you're just reading what you think are the best of their poems, it can be quite thrilling. So it might be that when I go back to her poems over the next few months and just read the ones that I really loved, that I will see her as being pretty central. I'm not sure. But without question, the what I imagine got her the Nobel Prize are two collections, one called Ararat from 1990, and the second, The Wild Iris from 1992. These definitely seem to be the hinge on which all of her other collections sort of it's the ones that the early collections lead up to, and it's the ones that the ones after it, the collections after them, sort of fall away from and don't seem to match. At least not until, let's see, what, what date is it? Her 2009 collection called A Village Life. And I know she's written two since then, and, but I have not read those yet. Um, so I wanted to read six poems from her collection Ararat, which is probably my favorite of all the ones that I read from her collected poems. And I wanted to read them as an example of how someone can do autobiography and do it very well. It strikes me that re reading the poems in Ararat, which were generally about the death of her father and the death of her sister, that it doesn't even provide a model for poets on how to do this, because I really don't know how it is that she does do what she does. It's not anything that anyone can imitate. It seems to be, even if you're one of those people who thinks that the poems I'm about to read feel like cut-up bits of prose. I saw a lot of jealous or just upset people when Glick won the Nobel Prize saying that. Her poems are just cut up bits of prose. But I don't think that's the case. Probably the best poem that I can think of from the 20th century, maybe after Eliot's Four Quartets, is Allen Ginsberg's Kaddish. And it is so personal and so autobiographical that I almost don't even think of it as being a poem. It doesn't matter to me what you call it because it seems to me pure humanity, pure expression in some way. And certainly in a way that Ginsburg was never able to match again. Usually he is just 
seems to be trying to shock you or he's just spilling out his mind. Um, while he may have done lots of rewriting of other poems, it rarely seems to be the case. But in Kaddish, he hits a note that he never did ever again and that I don't think anyone else did ever again. And, and that's the same sense that I get from the poems in Glick's book, Ararat, where we finally see what autobiography can bring out of a poet writing in the last 50 or so years. Because biography and what, what we would call free verse, free verse biography is, it seems to be, all we see nowadays when it comes to poetry. Poetry online, especially on blogs, or many popular poets. Um, and it's usually pretty terrible. But Glick has a way of entering her own life and describing her own life as a sister, as a daughter, a daughter of her mother, as well as a daughter of her father, and also as a parent that I've really never encountered before. And so with that long prologue, here are six poems from Louise Glick's 1990 book, Ararat. Lost Love by Louise Glick My sister spent a whole life in the earth. She was born, she died. In between, not one alert look, not one sentence. She did what babies do, she cried, but she didn't want to be fed. Still, my mother held her, trying to change first fate and then history. Something did change. When my sister died, my mother's heart became very cold, very rigid, like a tiny pendant of iron. Then it seemed to me my sister's body was a magnet. I could feel it draw my mother's heart into the earth so it would grow. Appearances by Louise Glick When we were children, my parents had our portraits painted, then hung them side by side over the mantel, where we couldn't fight. I'm the dark one, the older one. My sister is blonde, the one who looks angry because she can't talk. It never bothered me not talking. That hasn't changed much. My sister is still blonde, not different from the portrait. Except we are adults now. We've been analyzed. We understand our expressions. My mother tried to love us equally, dressed us in the same dresses. She wanted us perceived as sisters. That's what she wanted from the portraits. You need to see them hanging together, facing one another. 
separated, they don't make the same statement. You wouldn't know what the eyes were fixed on. They'd seem to be staring into space. This was the summer we went to Paris, the summer I was seven. Every morning we went to the convent. Every afternoon we sat still, having the portraits painted, wearing green cotton dresses, the square neck marked with a ruffle. Monsieur de Vanso added the flesh tones, my sister's ruddy, mine faintly bluish. To amuse us, Madame de Vanso hung cherries over our ears. It was something I was good at, sitting still, not moving. I did it to be good, to please my mother, to distract her from the child that died. I wanted to be child enough. I'm still the same, like a toy that can't stop and go, but not to change direction. Anyone can love a dead child, love in absence. My mother's strong. She doesn't do what's easy. She's like her mother. She believes in family, in order. She doesn't change her house, just freshens the paint occasionally. Sometimes something breaks, gets thrown away, but that's all. She likes to sit there, on the blue couch, looking up at her daughters, at the two who lived. She can't remember how it really was, how any time she ministered to one child, loved that child, she damaged the other. You could say she's like an artist with a dream, a vision. Without that, she'd have been torn apart. We were like the portraits, always together. You had to shut out one child to see the other. That's why only the painter noticed. A face already so controlled, so withdrawn, and too obedient. The clear eye saying, if you want me to be a nun, I'll be a nun. Brown Circle by Louise Glick my mother wants to know why, if I hate family so much, I went ahead and had one. I don't answer my mother. What I hated was being a child, having no choice about what people I loved. I don't love my son the way I meant to love him. I thought I'd be the lover of orchids who finds red trillium growing in the pine shade and doesn't touch it, doesn't need to possess it. What I am is the scientist who comes to that flower with a magnifying glass and doesn't leave, though the sun burns a brown circle of grass around the flower, which is more or less the way my mother loved me. I must learn to forgive my mother now that I'm helpless to spare my son. Child Crying Out by Louise Glick 
You're asleep now, your eyelids quiver. What son of mine could be expected to rest quietly, to live even one moment free of weariness? The night's cold, you've pushed the covers away. As for your thoughts, your dreams, I'll never understand the claim of a mother and a child's soul. So many times I made that mistake in love, taking some wild sound to be the soul exposing itself. But not with you, even when I held you constantly. You were born, you were far away. Whatever those cries meant, they came and went, whether I held you or not, whether I was there or not. The soul is silent. If it speaks at all, it speaks in dreams. Celestial Music by Louise Glick I have a friend who still believes in heaven. Not a stupid person, yet with all she knows, she literally talks to God. She thinks someone listens in heaven. On earth, she is unusually competent, brave, too, able to face unpleasantness. We found a caterpillar dying in the dirt, greedy ants crawling all over it. I'm always moved by weakness, by disaster, always eager to oppose vitality, but timid also, quick to shut my eyes. Whereas my friend was able to watch, to let events play out according to nature. For my sake she intervened, brushing a few ants off the torn thing, and set it down across the road. My friend says I shut my eyes to God, that nothing else explains my aversion to reality. She says I'm like the child who buries her head in the pillow so as not to see, the child who tells herself that light causes sadness. My friend is like the mother, patient, urging me to wake up an adult like herself, a courageous person. In my dreams, my friend reproaches me. We're walking on the same road, except it's winter now. She is telling me that when you love the world, you hear celestial music. Look up, she says. When I look up, nothing. Only clouds, snow, a white business in the trees, like brides leaping to a great height. Then I'm afraid for her. I see her caught in a net deliberately cast over the earth. In reality, we sit side by side of the road, watching the sunset. From time to time, the silence pierced by a bird call. It's this moment we're both trying to explain, the fact that we're at ease with death, with solitude. My friend draws a circle in the dirt. Inside, the caterpillar doesn't move. She's always trying to make something whole, something beautiful an image capable of life apart from her. We're very quiet. It's peaceful sitting here, not speaking. 
the composition fixed, the road turning suddenly dark, the air going cool, here and there the rocks shining and glittering. It's this stillness that we both love. The love of form is a love of endings. First Memory by Louise Glick Long ago I was wounded. I lived to revenge myself against my father, not for what he was, for what I was. From the beginning of time in childhood, I thought that pain meant I was not loved. It meant I loved. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.